You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players so that we can create a better tomorrow. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is David Finkel. David is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and his team at Maui Mastermind has coached over 100,000 businesses grow their business, and uh, he is one of the world's foremost leading experts at helping a business owner get out of their own way. <laughs> what I mean is so many businesses, so many business owners get into business because they want success and freedom. Uh, they want to make an impact. But ultimately what happens is as the business starts to su- succeed, the business owner becomes a bottleneck to their own growth because they want to control. They want to make sure that the quality is the level that they want it to be at. And every time they start to let go of control, the quality suffers, or at least they feel it does, or, uh, you know, things start to slip through the cracks. So David has spent a considerable, a considerable amount of time and effort and energy and investment in finding out what does it take for that business owner to break through that glass ceiling and grow and thrive and have their business fulfill its potential. He's got a new book coming out at the publish of this particular episode, this podcast episode. It's called The Freedom Formula, How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family, Health, or Your Life. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you. There's so much good information in this. So take a listen. Again, it's called The Freedom Formula. You can find it on Amazon and other bookstores. And with that, let's dive into the call. Here I am with David Finkel. All right. I am here with David Finkel again. David, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. I can't wait to have this conversation. I'm excited uh, about it too. I've been thinking about it. And every time you come out with something new, uh, it piques my interest because I know your mind and how you just break it down, simplify it. You're one of the best I know at doing exactly that. So um, since we last spoke, um, you, of course, let's give a, a brief overview of who you are and what you're up to and uh, your claim to fame, and then we'll dive into what what you've been up to recently, which is uh, fascinating. Fantastic. So I guess, I guess I'd start. My name's David Finkel, and those of you that, that know who I am, I've been working for about 20 years now with various business owners across North America. How do you scale a company and, and, and do that in a way that you can have a business and also have a life? How do you build a business, not just a job? How do you grow your company and fall in love with it again um, because you built it independent of you? so that you're not beholden to the company, but you're there to help. You add value, but your company has a life independent of, your, of you, the owner. And that's what I've uh, become well-known for uh, yes. in, the, uh, in the marketplace. One of, the, one of the best, if not the best, um, that breaks it down. Maui Mastermind is your sort of uh, the overarching brand, yes? Yeah. One of the things that I love about what you're doing there is uh, just the Maui Mindset. Um, and, and that freedom mindset. Cause I, I think that there's different types of entrepreneurs and that appeals to someone like myself, who's looking to create lifestyle and impact, um, which I think is, is the, the essence of what you're about. Um, yeah, go ahead. And it's just, a, to, I should say, I like what you said there, lifestyle and impact, I, you know, where this all came to be. I, I remember it was in 2005, right at the very end there, literally December 30th, I closed I sold a company that I had built. It was a coaching company that I'd spent the prior roughly decade building. And I was 30, what was I? Actually, I was 35. I did turn 35 at that point. I was 35 and essentially could retire. And there was no way, Peter, I wanted to do. I asked myself if I could do anything that I want to now that I have, you know, the, the economic part of my life, if I want to be done, done, what do I want to do, you know, with this next part of my life? And I, 
I recognized and I wanted to build another company, and this Maui Mastermind's been the company I've wanted to build. How do I build a business that works teaching people how to build a company independent of them? And so we've been coaching entrepreneurs now for, you know, 15 plus years since that, that point. And, and so I guess what you, your comment about impact and also a lifestyle. And I, I think as we get to started to talk about this idea of building something independent, if you're creating value in the world where it is not revolving just on what you do, for me, probably the biggest thing that sparked it was in 2009, the birth of my two sons, my, mm. my first two sons, Matthew and Adam. And prior to that, if you were to say, David, your business needs you, and uh, I know you want to have a good time, but your business needs you, I would have gotten on the plane. I would have buckled down for two or three months and finished off the book to, to meet a publisher deadline. I would have done all of that. But I remember when I was holding, and I know you're a dad, so when you had the same experience. When I was holding Matthew and Adam in the, in the, in the delivery room, they were C-section, and I'm holding them before my wife even does. And I was overwhelmed by every emotion you can imagine. And at that moment... Getting on that plane or, or, or two months of writing and ignoring my personal life, that was no longer an option. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I kind of look at it as kind of like a, when you go to space, you have certain limited um, inventory of consumables, of oxygen, of fuel, of water. And it changed how I approached growing companies. And the last 10 years have been all about if I have a certain limitation of the amount of working hours, how do I make the most? How do I optimize the value I can create knowing that for me, and everyone's different, for me, I, I, I've set my consumables of 40 working hours per week max and a minimum of 10 weeks of real vacation a year. And so with those constraints, it's changed how I've gone about building companies. And, and it was a struggle at first in some respects, and at this point it's just become a lot more fulfilling because I can still do good stuff and I still get to have a life at the same time. What I love about what you're doing is the emphasis and the gravity that you bring to that work-life balance because so often entrepreneurs are seduced by the idea of having it all and that a business is going to get it for you. And yet then they find out, uh, as you often teach, you, you, you work yourself into a job and probably even more so than a typical nine to five. If something happens on the weekends or at night or how are you going to make payroll? Like there's an extra burden that that entrepreneur carries. And oftentimes they wake up and they go, you know, they're 10 years in and they're burnout. They're, you know, right. what, it, what did I, what am I doing all this for? And you bring such an energy and uh, clarity to, oh, no, no, I get to actually be free from this, which is what most entrepreneurs want in the first place. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Free is uh, probably a good word to use to transition to what you've been doing now in a new book that you have written and is coming out. Tell us about that. Oh, I'm really excited. I'll even pull it up here right now. This is the, the press copy of it. The hardcover comes out really soon, the Freedom Formula here. And uh, it's been the work of, of almost two years of my life focusing on, on what I call the central challenge, right? Whether you're a business owner, whether you're an entrepreneur, a self-employed professional, how can you have an engaging, successful company and career without sacrificing family, health, and your personal life? How do you balance that? And it's not by balance. It's by really changing how you go about it. I mean, Peter, everyone that's listening or watching this podcast, they're all going to say, oh, of course, we're supposed to work smart, not just work hard. Everybody knows that. The part that's so frustrating or maddening is how do I actually mechanically work smart in the face of a thousand emails, 
a flood of app alerts and feeds that I'm responsible for, customer demands, staff fires. How do I work smart in the face of all these other things that pull me left and right and almost like tear me apart? And so that's what the central challenge of the Freedom Formula works to solve. And it gives people a a four-step process to operationalize what does it actually mean in the real world to work smarter. And that's been a a joy. And and I'll tell you that none of this comes from the world of academics. Unfortunately, I I stopped school after my my, uh, undergraduate degree. My wife, who's a, a PhD in psychology, probably could do the research. For me, my research laboratory wasn't college students that were um, doing experiments. It was my own clients and the people we work with. We work with several thousand business leaders every year. And so we started to experiment in their companies. You know, what things make the most impact? What could we let go of if we tweak and twist? And this is built from the bottom up, this formula over a decade. And we found that these are the essential elements that if you do these things and they're simple and they're easy, then you can create magnitudes more value that's independent of the actual hours that you work. And that's what the book's focused on. This the, the reason why I think people really need to listen to your voice uh, is you'll see often a business owner, an entrepreneur that that achieves wild success, and then they and people go, "Well, how'd you do it? How'd you do it?" And they'll break it down. And they there's a lot of really good content out there, good books, seminars, whatever. But it's how that one person paved their own path to success. And what you're bringing to the table is you have extensive experience with working with your clientele, thousands of other businesses. So these are proven strategies across multiple disciplines, multiple verticals. And that to me is very, very intriguing. And I'm excited to hear what you found were the common threads throughout all of that. It sounds like there was four different pieces. Let's dive into those if you can. Absolutely. So first of all, the book was written for someone who's got some ambition. So I'm, I'm assuming if they're listening to this podcast, they must have ambition. If you don't, don't get the book. It's just going to be maddening and frustrating for you because you're not going to do anything with it anyways. But assuming you have some ambition to do something meaningful and worthwhile and you want to have a life too, that, that's who it's for. But the, the four core steps, so the first half of the book talks about these four core steps. And these core steps are, first of all, to embrace what I call the value economy. And we just take a moment in there. So most people are living in what I call a time and effort world, that they create value in their world by hours, effort, sweat, blood, and tears. I mean, if it were a, if uh, the, the, time and val- the time and effort economy were a movie in Hollywood, it would be like Rocky, right? Our hero would be Rocky Balboa, the poster child, right? Through effort, grit, and gore, he somehow survives 15 rounds and, and, and becomes heavyweight champion of the world. And someone hears that and goes, well, hey, look, I, I'm willing to, to give it all. I'm willing to absorb all that punishing uh, punches if I can become world champion in my area, but I would tell you, isn't there a better way to do that than, than absorb all that punishing uh, blows? But first of all, that's also Hollywood. And for every one that makes that, that journey, there's a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million that they end up having been bloodied and they don't get what they want. So how do you really create value? The value economy says, I look for not for hours and effort, but I look for value and contribution. And so as a business owner, if I can't accept that premise, nothing else happens. And by accepting that premise, I have to look at, really honestly, Peter, for most people, it's more than just giving a lip service. Most people say, oh, of course, I believe that. But I watch their behaviors. We have this inside view of thousands of clients we've worked with, and I'll watch their behavior when they get started. They'll say, David, of course, I embrace the value economy. Their behavior says, though, 
I reward my employees for making sure they show up on time. I reward my employees or punish my employees when they don't become responsive to emails that I or other people send to them. Think about that. I might have a guy who's helping lead. Let's say I've got Joe, and Joe's with an engineering, with my engineering side, working on a new software release for my company. He might have closed off his office, brought together two of his lead programmers in a room to solve a development challenge. Three hours spent in a conference room literally might control a thousand hours of programming time, their most expensive time in the company. And I might be pissed off at him because Joe didn't get back to my email for four hours. What kind of message do I send to him? And I see it all the time where I push people to be responsive instead of creating value. And so if you think about it this way, that the value economy says, if I don't create value, my boss will be upset. The time and effort economy says that my boss sees I'm not busy or my boss feels I'm not being responsive, she's going to be mad. And so I think it's really important that the time and effort economy says things like, you know what, I, I've got to check my, my phone in my my feed at night and on weekends or at my kid's performance. I've got to be in work with me on vacation because if I don't, I might miss something. The value economy says I'm going to redesign how things come to me so that I know that if I'm not able to enjoy my family as well, they're going to resent what I do and they're going to undercut what I do. And that for me to retain my best people, they've got to be able to have a life. So if I can embrace the value economy, which is a very short chapter, now I get to the mechanics. Step two says I have to reclaim some of my best time. Uh, For me to create value, Peter, I've got to have blocks of my very best time in one to three hour chunks of uninterrupted time. And so we go through a series of of techniques or technologies to get that. And again, this is where we've learned from trial and error in, in chapter two. It gives people things like the 12 email best practices, or it tells them how do you actually best leverage a personal assistant, the seven suggestions for that, or how do you create your, your actual focus days and focus time. Now that I've got those blocks of time, I have to ask myself on step three, what are the fewer better that I should invest in? What are those fewer better activities, projects, initiatives, strategies that if I invest more of my time, my team, my talent, and my attention will give the biggest return? And we've all seen this happen in our business lives, especially for entrepreneurs. It's the, the three days before we go on vacation where we're hyper-focused on only doing the stuff that matters. It's like we have the best month of our year and we're about to go on vacation because normally we spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% of our time with all the crap. And I'll, and I'll give an analogy here. So I don't know about you, Peter, but I love buffets. I absolutely love buffets because I, I like the idea of all you can eat. Yeah. My strategy at a buffet is this, though. The very first plate is the most important plate of a buffet. If I can eat my vegetables and high-quality proteins that first plate, mm. I'll have filled most of my stomach with nutritious stuff. Plus, even if I eat all the other junk, my first plate gave me the nutrition that I need. But most people approach their business life where they just go to the, the pasta bar of their business. They, they spend their day in email, <laughs> right? They, just, they waste it. And so the book shows you how to make sure that first plate of business activities is the nutritious stuff. All we need to shift is five to seven hours of your time. You can do the rest of your week the same. And those five to seven hours, week after week after week, change everything. Yeah, it's that uh, the 80-20 rule. It seems like you know, 80% of yeah. profits come from 20% of the productivity or, or 20% of the focus, et cetera. Or uh, you see that play out a lot. So you're, you're really talking about leverage there, finding those. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, I would take Pareto's principle to a, to a, even a more of an extreme. If 20% gives me 80% of the result, let's take 20% of that 20%. If I do the math, it's going to be 64% of the outcome. We call that B time. Hmm. And if I take 20% of that 20% of the 20%, it's, it's that 1% magic that does everything. It's that one phone call, that one hire, that one strategy decision. And so the final step, though, is now that I start making these breakthroughs, Peter, we, we, we for years didn't have this fourth step. And so what would happen is we'd have clients that would have one or two years of the best business they ever had, clients that might grow 50%, 250%, 1,000%. But then they, everything would come kind of uh, falling back. And so that fourth step is we have to build strategic depth to maintain these results. And strategic depth means how do we make sure that we're not reliant on any one person? How do we build this to be systems-driven, cross-trained team, with a culture that supports that we actually do believe in building, refining, using systems, and cross-training other people. And I'll give an example from the book. So this won't be her real name. In the book, I'm not allowed to use her real name or his real name. I didn't actually say who it was. But in the book, we, we call this person Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is, works for a large corporation, a Fortune, 50, well, Fortune 100 company. I'm not sure if they're actually in the Fortune 50. The Fortune 100 company, company that in her world, she's a rock star. She plays a place in risk management. And in her company, she was one of the, the, the only people specifically mentioned that if she wasn't on the account, this marquee multi-billion dollar company wouldn't have become a client. Mm-hmm. She works 100-hour weeks. She does that week after week, month after month, and she's done that for over 12 years at this company. Mm-hmm. No one else can do what she does. And so what happens is corporate America says, oh, man, if only I could have more Elizabeths, then we would be successful. And that's just crazy. These are professionals in risk management wanting that as a strategy. They basically put all their eggs in one basket. They've ground down that basket with 100-plus-hour working weeks with no real vacation time, maybe once a year she gets away for you know, two weeks. And no one else knows what she does or how she does it. No one else has the same client relationship. No one else has this expertise. It's just, it's insanity. So step four says, how do I make sure that I mitigate those types of risks, both for defense, but also, Peter, for offense, to create a platform from which I can scale. And that's the first half of the book that goes through that core formula. Hmm. Um, You talked about in in the first step, the embracing the value concept embracing the value economy. Um, what I, I, I've done a little bit of research myself on that particular concept. And not only does it make sense, uh, of course, the people, you know, your, your people, your employees appreciate that. But um, there's been extensive studies to show that employees are far more productive. And I think, I think sometimes there are some types of business owners that look at this kind of stuff and they go, no, 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 no. This is where we're going to beat a company like David's because they're off, you know, enjoying the T-ball game and I'm going to, you know, keep my workers there. And yet they're working at, you know, 60% productive rate because they're exhausted. They haven't seen their kids. They're frustrated. They're not motivated to be there. So there's real actual numbers, bottom line numbers that prove that this is actually a better strategy. It, it boggles Absolutely. My- People don't get that. And, and people think it's about, oh, I just got to be softer on all my people. It's not about that. I'm actually tough on my people. But here's what I'm tough on. Have you created value? Have you invested your best time on the things that make a difference versus are you just 
going through the motions? Are you just keeping busy? I don't want someone to respond to me at 7.30 in the morning time if it's an unimportant thing. I would prefer them to use that first golden hour or two of the day to do something that matters, to make another sale, to uh, create a redefining uh, email sequence that's going to change for how we work with every new coaching client, to do a new version of a website that we've been struggling with before. You know, that's the stuff that creates value. So I'm very firm on my staff to create value, but I want to make sure that if the message I send is, I'm looking for you to create value, and the things that don't create value, I don't want you to do those things, not just behavior-wise, but structurally, uh, that, that get in the way. I, I don't expect my people to, if I send them an email, Peter, I don't want them to drop everything to answer me. Mm-hmm. Like we had a, a brand-new account manager come on. She said something, and I really appreci- appreciated her honesty. Her name was Maggie. She said, David, in my past life in corporate America, if my boss sent me a message, it was drop everything to answer the message. Is that what you want? And I said, I'm so glad you asked the question, Maggie. The answer is absolutely not. We've got a mechanism in our company where if it's an email, we use a numbering system, one, two, or three. That one means it's an urgent, important thing, drop everything. But there shouldn't be more than a couple ones all year. It's a two. It means, yes, there's some action. When you get a moment here today, read it and take the action that's appropriate in a reasonable time. And a three is an FYI. So we use that in our headers with the other parts of the subject lines to let people know how to scan through. But If I really needed Maggie at an urgency, and this is something we cover in the second half of the book, we call it the five freedom accelerators, engage my team, become a better coach, grow my leadership team, create a better culture, and leverage better design. So in that final part about leveraging better design, think about this. You've heard the expression, it's like a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. Most people constantly have a low level of vigilance monitoring their email their app feeds, Slack channels, whatever it is for them. And what they don't realize is they're, they're afraid of that one email in a thousand, that needle in the haystack. And the price of them and their staff having to low-level monitor that and keep getting pulled back and interrupted into that is huge. It's, it's millions of dollars a year for most small to mid-sized companies for doing that. Instead, I told Maggie, look, if there's an emergency that's important and urgent, I'll text you or I'll get you through some other mechanism, some other place that I can deliver the needle so you don't have to watch after the haystack while you're doing the most important work. Because she was saying, David, do you want me to get off the phone call with a client who's about to upgrade their membership with us? Maggie, of course not. That's what you're on. That's how you create value for us. So it's my responsibility that if something is truly a needle, important and urgent, I should deliver it to you in a mechanism that you don't have to monitor the haystack 24-7. Now she can have a life. Now she can go enjoy Lexi, her young daughter. Now she can enjoy her husband. And when she's at work, she can make sure she carves out two hours here, an hour here, three hours there to create incredible value versus just putting in the hours because putting in the hours does not create the value necessarily. Right. Um, what I love about this is, especially for my personality type, I, I, I'm more the like shiny objects and like I, the, the sure. openness, the creativity, the how do we, you know, attack this from a different angle? Let's look at this perspective. I'm good there. Where where I struggle, where I need support is on that the the strategic how tos, the check, you know, make sure the checklist gets uh, covered. And it made me think of a lot of business owners that I know. 
that um, are very control driven. They want to have control. And when you start to detail out all this stuff, David's gotten to the point where, you know, you, what was it? 12 different uh, email types or something. It's like you can breathe again as an entrepreneur to go, he's already thought of everything. Let me just follow this and, and implement these things. And it puts somebody like myself, who's like, do we have everything? Have we checked everything? Cause that's, again, that's not where my mind is, is strong. And, and so anyway, I could just, I can, I can hear the collective sigh of relief from entrepreneurs like, okay, this makes sense. Help me, help me get some, uh, you know, footing in my business. So I'm not always putting out fires, right? This is much more preventative than it is, uh, reactive, which is awesome. Um, you talked about, uh, before we go on to sort of the second half of the book in the four steps under strategic depth, you talked about culture. One of the things that I, I think a lot of, uh, business owners struggle with is they have the standard, they have the drive, they have all that. How do you, how do you incorporate that into the, to the culture, not just with good people, but like, what are the tangible things that you can do to make sure that the, the follow through on the standards that you're talking about are, are there. Yeah. Great, great, great question. So in the second half of the freedom formula, we talk about these five accelerators and this is essentially leveraging your team. So this, the first half is about how do you be smarter, better operationalized? How do you work smarter? The nitty gritty. The second half is how do you now leverage your team to get more done faster? So culture, let's think about that for a moment. So first of all, most of us approach culture as we just ignore it. We think, well, I'll get to it. I'm too busy. It's soft. And what we've done is we've by default built an, a, a culture that makes no sense. I mean, this is really painful. If you think about it, though, culture happens no matter what. And so there are simple things that we do. The first three steps I would start with, number one, I just ask myself, what, what is the culture that I would want to have? Actually, I'll step back. Let's say, why does culture matter? So culture shapes behavior when no one's looking. This is, becomes the default behavior. And so think about it this way. I, if I could show you a picture of me in the eighth grade, Peter, you would laugh your head off the way my hair was back then. I, I grew up in the, in the 80s, so in, in seventh grade, I would be in the, in, it would have been in the, the early 80s with all the new wave stuff way back when. So I had my hair slicked back, and I looked like an idiot. I really did. Why did I dress that way? Because everyone else around me did. And we say, okay, peer pressure. But even in the family systems, the same way. Like, I'll never forget, I was on a vacation with my family. This is before I got married. Uh, Heather came on the vacation with my family. And we're in Hawaii, and we're all on Maui. We're all sitting down at the beach reading a book, separately. Together, but separately. I thought nothing of it. Heather looked at us and thought we were crazy, because in her family, that's not a vacation. That's a punishment. <laughs> like, you should be talking and interacting. But in my family, we all grabbed our books and read. That's an example of culture. No one said in my family we should grow up reading books. It's just that was what it was. That was the, the, the feel. So, again, it's, it, it's shaped who I am today. I, today I still read 50-plus books a year. So in your company, culture matters. That's why. It shapes behavior, especially you mentioned your superstars, they're going to behave well no matter what. I don't really have to worry about that. The, you know, I might have um, um, with Caesar, and he might be a star. And, and I can leave Caesar alone, and he's going to produce phenomenal results. But I might have some other people that they're on any given day, good or bad, with what they do. Culture matters a lot because it sets the standards, the unspoken code of behavior, the way things are done here. So the first step is, what do I ideally want that culture to be? Number two, I then write down, 
behaviorally, what would be the behaviors I would see if we lived up to that culture? And I'll give an example. So if one of our cultural elements for my company, Maui Mastermind, is we eat our own cooking. It's this idea that we're going to become a product of our own coaching program. That, you know, for example, all my leaders are all matched up with one of our coaches. We do our quarterly planning process. We do our weekly big rock reports, just like we coach clients. So what would be the behaviors I would see if in our company that was real, this idea of we eat our own cooking? I would observe other team members using that language with each other about, you know, cajoling each other about living to a different standard. I would watch people make decisions by that standard by asking, hmm, like, for example, our technology lead, Larry, he wouldn't just say, I've got seven different people crying at me for fixes with certain technology solutions. And he wouldn't just go, well, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by a toe. He would say, the way we would coach a client would be to let our company priorities drive which places get our best um, technology resources. And the other people, I'm just going to have to politely let them know that they're going to have to wait. So that, those are the behaviors that I would see. I would, so I write down what I want the culture to be. Two, what behaviors would I see that would be happening? And then number three, I ask the honest question, where's the gap? Where am I at today? Well, I know this is what I want, and these are the behaviors I want, but here's the behaviors that there are, and I just want to observe the gap. And from there, I look for every opportunity I have to reinforce the culture I want. How can I share a story? How can I acknowledge somebody in public for a behavior that was good? You know, going back to my example here, um, if uh, Diamond, who works in our marketing department, if Diamond does something really good that fits our company culture of we do what we say we'll do and hold other people accountable to the same standard, she might do something that hurts us, but it's the right decision. For example, we agree to a contract with a vendor, and, and we have to live up to what we said, even if it wasn't what we wanted to in the short term. Well, David, I tried to negotiate it. They, they held firm. So I I said, okay, we're going to live up to our side. I should applaud that because in the long run, the fact that she used our values and our culture to make her decision is going to help us in a big way, even if it in the short term hurts us. So I look for these places to reinforce that culture. Mm. And I'll give one last comment here, Peter, which is culture is not born overnight. The idea for culture is gentle pressure applied relentlessly. It's a concept I talk about in the book. It's not a one-time deal. I have to drip. I can't drown people. I've got to drip. Gentle pressure applied relentlessly over time. It won't make a difference in a month, but over the course of a year or two, it changes everything, everything. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of a story that a, uh, a friend of mine told me. He's got a multi-million dollar business, and they were talking about um, – they manufacture products and they distribute them out into the marketplace, you know, to their, to their customers and then their customers sell, sell them to the end user. And they were having, uh, their customers change the pricing on their product and they wanted to hold firm and they had the decision to make, uh, they, they finally found out who the vendor was that was, uh, undercutting them online and uh, through some tracking that they did, and, and it was their biggest customer. And so they had a very big dilemma. Do we, how do we enforce this standard? And long story short, what they ended up doing was they ended up firing their best customer because they were getting undercut. And that, he, this person told me that that um, value and standard that they set had a ripple effect in the industry and they all knew from that point on, number one, don't mess around with them because they're going to, you know, they're going to hold their standard, number one. Number two, they mean what they say. 
And that I find to be extremely valuable in real dollars and cents terms to the bottom line because they attracted so many other businesses that wanted to work with them because of that. That reminds me of what you're talking about here. Um, I think another really good sign of a great culture too is that people don't people uh, the people who don't naturally fit into it naturally self-select themselves out. That's right. That's a good sign of good culture is that the wrong people don't want to be there. They don't like the high standard or they don't like this that whatever i i like have you have you experienced that before either with your team or in 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 other clients sure you know it's interesting so most people think what how do i retain good people um well i pay them i pay them i pay them i compensate them i pay them and what i tell i ask people it's like for example this is at the beginning of chapter five in the book and one of the things i ask people regularly and i say you know i I want you to ask answer the question name two of your top people and they name a name i say great is it not true that these two people could easily go across the street to your competitor and tomorrow make more money. And they have to go, yeah, you're right. Every one of our employees, especially our best employees, are volunteers. Now, they're paid volunteers, but they're volunteers. And so most of us think about how do we retain people. We use compensation and inertia. (laughs) And that's crazy. How does a charity retain people? Some of the statistics on charities are amazing. Nonprofits, uh, in 2017, which is the most recent year I could find the statistics, 900 million people around the world donated time. It had a value of close to one point something trillion dollars of market value of volunteer services. Um, and these are people who volunteered that weren't being paid. So these are not the paid volunteers I was discussing before. Mm-hmm. Why do people volunteer? For a sense of meaning. They identify with a cause or a group. They feel part of something bigger than themselves. They, they like the, what, what they get to do makes a difference and have an impact. They feel better about themselves. It's interesting and challenging or somehow helps them grow. So people who work for you want the same things. If you look at their needs, you know, money is a need that they have. Everyone has economic responsibilities, but it's a second-tier need. Every survey that I've ever seen from Glassdoor.com surveys to um, uh, surveys done by Gallup, shows that once the money is treated fairly, that it becomes a non-issue. And so money for people is about economic needs, but it's also a marker, a shortcut, for am I respected and valued. Once that's aside there, things like, does my work have meaning? So does my work actually make a difference? Do I enjoy the people I'm around? Do I fit in here? So you mentioned about culture. One of the things I do to retain people is when I create this culture people who, who resonate with the meaning of what you do, the people who resonate with the fact that they identify that these are my people. That's how you maintain people. I mean, if I look back to the people who've left, you know, the people who've left after a month or six months, those are the people who had no real meaning for it. They were there just for the money. The people who resonate with Maui's culture, you know, our longest standing person, Larry, has been with me for two startups now. Hmm. Um, and he's been with me for 20, I want to say 22 or 23 years. I've known him longer than I know my wife. Um, with that part. He resonates with the, the, the meaning of what we do. He finds that he likes who he's with. It, it, it gives him all those other intangibles that make a difference. He's growing. And so on the culture side, yes, it does help filter, but I have to think to myself, how do I have as many of these different threads holding my people to them? Because retention is everything in terms of, of cost and, and momentum that I can keep and maintain if, in fact, I can keep my people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you talked about the five freedom accelerators. Can you go over those again real quick? Sure. The first says I have to engage my team. I have to give my team a voice and get them to be participants in what I do. Second is I have to become a better coach. People in today's world, they don't just want to be told do X, do Y. They want to grow as an individual and as a business person. So I have to coach them to be better. So where do we learn from that? We learn from the world of professional sports. Think about it. The two most expensive leagues in the world, the NFL and the English Premier Soccer League are two examples I use from the book. You know, the, the players in those worlds, the top 10 players are earning round numbers between 15 and $25 million a year. The top coaches are earning anywhere from 8 to $16 million a year for coaching. Why do we spend so much? Because we have billions of dollars at stake. Well, the same thing here in the world of with our, with our team. So there's certain best practices about how to actually coach an employee that we've learned over the years because we've coached thousands of people. The second accelerator is how do we grow a leadership team? So building people by coaching is one thing, but how do I build a, a, a team and, and leaders? And what this does for me is it takes and it helps me overcome the fact that my attentional um, load that I can handle, my attention span, it gives me not just me looking and keeping track of all these things, but now I replicate myself with another leader who can coach, who can decide, who can direct, who can guide. So how do I grow a leadership team? The, the third is how do I build my culture? And so now that I'm growing my culture with actually, pardon me, that's the fourth, excuse me, the fourth is how do I grow my culture? So how do I, how do I make coaching and developing my team and engaging my team automatic? If I want to make any behavior automatic to make it the default, Peter, I inject it as part of my culture, and that's what the fourth accelerator is. I, I intentionally make strategically chosen things part of my culture of my company, and then they become the automatic given. Hmm. And then the final one is I leverage better design. And specifically what I mean here is how do I deal with all the interruptions, the, the, the demands, the fires, the peripheral things that pull me away? Like you, you, you mentioned a great one. You said, hey, David, I'm a prototypical entrepreneur. I, I bright and shiny. I'm a squirrel chasing after it. Yeah. Well, the, I can say, Peter, just use better willpower. And you can do that for an hour, for a day, maybe for a week. But over time, environment is almost always going to beat out discipline and willpower. So how do I set up my environment in mm-hmm. such a way that the environment makes it easier so I can leverage better design to make my work life easier? Isn't that the essence of the value economy? An hour spent on better designing something in my company, a process, uh, an environment, a workspace, a tool, gives me a 1,000x return as I use it over the next year or two. That's mm-hmm. good leverage. Mm-hmm. That's good leverage. Um, I was gonna, so I was just going to ask you the, the, the subcategories uh, of design. You talked about uh, environment, process. Um, what about actual... Um, workspace, environment. Workspace, environment, um, design in, uh, in your collateral, in your marketing collateral, your website. Absolutely. We call that tools. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. One of our clients is a surgeon. Um, in his surgical practice, he gives the same preoperative instructions a thousand times over the course of his 20 years in medicine. So one of our suggestions for him was to do it differently, and so he did. He spent about four hours organizing and getting put together a really good video of him doing his preoperative instructions. The video was probably about three times longer in Enbrel than what he used to do, and so he has people watch that. He comes in the room afterwards, says, do you have any questions for me? And, and what he's done is he saved probably... 
uh, an hour to two hours every week for the rest of his life. And by every marker of the reaction, response, and surveys, people feel more connected to him and like they had a better experience with his surgical practice, which is important because he's an elective surgeon. Hmm. So they had less time objectively, but they had a better experience. That's the essence of better design. Yeah. The customer experience is something that I think more companies could spend a lot more time focusing on uh, because they're so focused on building products, you know, generating sales, but they they forget sometimes what happens prior to or uh, post sale. What happens to you know what is that full experience and how do I turn this customer into a raving fan? Do you have any suggestions on that element post sale? How do I? Yeah, this is really present for us. So, you know, in our business coaching practice here, about once every six months or so, we redesign how we do it. So we just sat down recently and did that. So what I would suggest to somebody is you you follow the day in the life of a customer of yours. I mean, that could literally be, I've got a friend of mine who built, I think one of his companies went over about half a billion dollars. The guy knows what he's doing. And his comment was, we went and spent a day in the life of our main customer. We literally had a team go there and walk through what was it like to interact, what were they dealing with, what was going on in their life. When they came to interact with our product, it was a software product, what else is going on in the environment? And so if you get into the day of the life, what it does is now I can go back and think of all the places where I've made it hard, where I've made it difficult, where I've made it painful, where I've made it slow, where I've made it unattractive. And I can go back and ask myself, how could less produce more? How could more produce so much more that it's worth the extra expense? How could I simplify it? How could I add to it? How can I combine it? How can I automate it? How can I template it? And there's a series of 10 questions that you ask to do that that we cover in the book. But the main point is I go back and I follow the day in the life of a customer. And for us, recently, for us as a client, we've gone back through and we've actually, for us, we found we over-informed. When someone became a client of ours, Peter, we had such a detailed, choreographed series of communications from account manager, email drips, uh, videos being sent. We overloaded them. And so what we had to do is we had to go back and cherry pick what were the messages that mattered most and get rid of some of the other ones or delay them later on. And so for us, less actually produced a better result, which was interesting. Very interesting. Um, how do you envision somebody tactically using this book? Is this the business owner that should be reading this? Is it the whole management Great team? Question. And then how do you implement? So one of the reasons I'm as excited about this book, this is the first project I've ever written that's not just for the owner of the business, but it's literally for all of their key team. Mm-hmm. So this would not be for a frontline employee who has no ambitions doing more than just working in the fulfillment warehouse. This is for any manager, supervisor, executive of a company could be the owner as well. And how I would use it and how we use it in our company is we put together with the book, there's actually, as part of the book, you get a, a value add on the web at freedomtoolkit.com. You, you register your book, and there's a 90-day program that you go through. You, you read one chapter together, you and your six people on your leadership team, for example. Um, you take and download a one-page action guide that gives certain discussion questions. You have a 20, 30, 40-minute rich conversation about the concept. You watch a, a video, eight to 10 minutes, And then you take one or two key focused action steps. Those action steps are not homework. They're specific things that you should be doing in the business anyway to give you immediate value. And 90 days later, everyone gets the core four steps of the formula. So that's how I would recommend doing it. Don't reinvent the wheel. This should not just be the owner. That would be the craziest thing of all. Why? Because 
if you're the only one working in the value economy and everyone else you're paying is in the time and effort economy, I promise you that you will get sucked to the time and effort economy because they're not doing those things they needed to be doing to create value. You'll be doing half their job. So I want my key people to do this book with me, chapter by chapter, for the first four chapters. Anything else after that is gravy. The second half of the book, that's gravy. Hopefully they'll have so much uh, of a good experience with the first half that they're going to willingly want to do the second half. And, you know, if they're an audio version of it, tell them to get the audible version, which will be available when the book's launch comes on September 3rd. Awesome. Are you reading that, by the way, or did you hire that out? I did. I already spent five days in the studio and had a a, a great time doing that. So it was yeah, fun. I'm I, so I, grateful you said that. I, I, It's so frustrating sometimes to hear these incredible books being read by actors that I'm just like, it's just not the right voice. It's just there's a disconnect. Uh, so I'm grateful to hear this that. is too much of my baby not to want to do that. Right. And I've spent two years of my life on this thing. I, I wasn't going to just going to have anyone else. Uh, by the way, the first audiobook I ever, I ever did, I didn't even know my publisher sold the audio rights. I, sh- I saw someone show me, this is back in the days of CDs. Uh-huh. Someone showed me these CDs. I'm like, wait a second. Did someone just pirate my book? It was a woman reading the book. I didn't know who it was. I found out later we had just sold the audio rights, and I was so busy I hadn't noticed it. But I made the commitment right there. Every book I've done since, and I've been the one that's read it. I just, oh, that's so if I'm great. going to take a year or two to write it, I'm going to read the darn thing. Yay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, what I love about how you've broken this down is you started to talk about the Freedom Accelerators, the second half of the book, and my mind started going like, whoa, 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 okay, there's a lot of stuff. How, how would I actually, if I was to do all this, how would I implement it? But then you look back at the first part of the book, and it's, oh, how do I eliminate all the stuff that I'm not good at? And, and I can visualize like, where is reclaiming my best time? I just feel like a huge chunk of time in my day and in my week opening up. And I go, oh, okay, here's how I can fit into the, fit the five uh, freedom accelerators. And um, is that sort of why you it is. put the, it in that way? The, it is. So first of all, I've been working with business owners for 20 years. Every business owner says, I have no room to do anything more. No business owner ever tells me, 99 out of 100 at least, tell me, I've got so much on my plate, I couldn't even afford the time to even do what you're saying. And I smile and say, okay, well, what if we could free up three to five hours that you're already working and just focus those three to five hours differently? Yes, that's great. But, but I couldn't do it. Peter can do it. Jody can do it. Susie can do it, but not me. And as soon as we show them how to do it, which is what Chapter 2 does, they're like, oh, that's all I have to do? <laughs> and now it's simple. We structure their time and their week just slightly differently. We say eat the first plate at the time buffet differently, mm-hmm. and then you can do the rest of the week the same. And it's that three, five, seven hours that you reclaim back that now you can start doing these other things. And, and what's interesting is when you start doing that, you start recognizing, and I'll share a story about this just right afterwards, how much of what you do was junk? And I'll give this story. Tom Santilli, he's, in, he's one of the guys I share a story in the book with his permission. Um, when I first started working with him, he had a great company from the perspective of money. $5 million a year in sales, $1 million a year in operating profit pre-tax. It was a, an online wholesaling company, sold used um, uh, computer servers uh, and Dell equipment and other equipment, and did a great job. But he was working 80-plus hours um, affecting his health, affecting his family, affecting his marriage. His wife, Lee, actually searched and found us on the web. It paid for the program, which was non-refundable. Tom is cheap. He'll be the first to tell you that when he found he could, we wouldn't give him a refund. Remember, we do what we say we'll do, and we hold other people accountable to the same standard. He did it. 
And his comment was, wow, this is now about two or three years into it. He says, I couldn't believe how much of what I was doing was just complete junk. He realized there were only three things that he did for his company that created value. Everything else was junk. He, he, he bought the right products at the right price and made sure that his, his purchasing team got the right stuff at the right price so they could have margin. Number two, he made sure his sales team priced it appropriately so they didn't give away the margin. And number three, he made certain strategic decisions along the way, key hires, key strategies, et cetera. Everything else was, was, was the low-value stuff. Hmm. So eight years into this process, Peter, he's now working under 15 to 20 hours a week. His company has sales over $20 million a year, wow. and he's effectively retired. He, he does his business out of you know, love. And you know, the sad part for him was his kids grew up and, and, and kind of became early to mid-teenagers, after he had already freed up the time. Mm. So his comment was, David, you know, I wished I would have done this five years before when my kids wanted nothing more than to be around me. Right. Nowadays, my kids, my son wants to play video games. My daughter wants to, you know, not be around her dad anymore because she's a little bit older. Oh. And I get it. I get oh, it, man. I felt incredible. for him. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, management team that might come across this, hear this, say, this is fantastic. I'm on board, but they have a, they have a, a CEO and owner that, that has a different vision, has a, no, 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 we're not going to waste time on this stuff. How do you help influence what's best for the business with this type of approach? Great question. You cheat. Yeah. <laughs> so the owner of a business is not going to listen to the people who are closest to him or her. They're not. I've seen it all the time. I've come into a number of businesses, and I've made a suggestion. The owner goes, David, you're brilliant. Where did I get the suggestion, Peter? From their COO, from their CFO, from their chief marketing officer. Mm-hmm. All I did was say it, and because I'm a stranger, they gave me more credibility, which was ridiculous, but I'll, I'll take it. So sometimes it, it's a matter of getting the owner to read the book, or most likely, if they're that type of personality, listen to the book. Hey, you know, um, Peter, I, I really think we can create more value here. I think we can scale faster. Would you be willing to listen to two chapters of this audiobook? I paid for it with my own money. Would you be willing to listen to two chapters? I think that for you, we can do more with the company. Are you open to that? Of course I am. And because it, you know, the, the idea of a profit in his own land is never valued, mm-hmm. because it comes from someone from the outside, it is. And it, it, it's unfair, but you cheat. And so you, 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 you're smart about it. And then from that opening... Now you start to do what the book says, and the business owner is going to come around. You might never change their behaviors, but they will support you behaving that way. And they'll give you a language of how to rein them back in. Like one of the examples I shared in the book was a medical corporation, and their COO, Michelle, um, had a, their, their CEO, their, their, the, the main doctor there, um, Dr. Chala, was brilliant, still is. This guy is the smartest entrepreneur I probably have ever met in the medical field, maybe Maybe the second one, there's a guy, Dr. Singh, that I watched build a couple hundred million dollar medical corporation, brilliant as well. But this guy is really smart. He has about a thousand good ideas a month, and they're really good ideas. Hmm. So the ideas of the book gave them a vocabulary, a a structured framework to say, okay, we can't do all these ideas, Dr. Chala. We're going to do these fewer ideas, and it let him and his COO partner more effectively to create some remarkable changes. And I've watched their, their practice flourish by doing that. So cheat, give them the book with a specific request that they start with just two chapters, chapter one and chapter two. And that's all it's going to take. They read chapter one and two, they'll do the rest of it. 
Mm-hmm. I found uh, real quick, cause I know we're running a little bit short on time. I found another very effective strategy is pressure from the top. So you, mm. you, you might say, Hmm, how, how do I put pressure from the top? He is the top or she is the top. I find that if you can find other peers, a lot of times business owners will be in networks or what have you. If you can find other business owners or even a competitor, oh, I heard the competitor yeah. and you can apply pressure that way in a way that's in the best interest of the business. That's uh, a great idea. I will uh, wrap it up here. But for those that are very interested to take the next step, um, you mentioned the website freedomtoolkit.com. They can go there, start to uh, get in on your radar or tell people what they would get when they sign up there. Yeah, so the, the biggest thing is to go to your, your bookseller. Right? If you like to buy stuff through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or Indiegogo, or you like to go, like, for example, we're doing our book launch party at the Tattered Cover in Denver um, in September. Wherever you like to buy a book, support the bookseller that you enjoy. Buy a copy and get a copy for your team, um, and, and I really encourage that. If you're not sure where to get a copy of it, you can go to freedomtoolkit.com. It'll have links there for all these other places. Once you've got the book, you can then register the book, and it has all kinds of things. It unlocks all the PDF tools in the book that are shown. We give you the, the, the downloadable color copies so that you can use them inside of your business with your key team. Uh, the video trainings that come extra, the training about how to leverage your personal assistant, the training about how to actually do your UBS and your system of all your systems, it's all there. But start with just getting a copy of the book. You know, you can, it, it releases on, on September 3rd. Um, you can get a pre-order copy. I think it'll probably start shipping a little bit early. And I'm going to ask one favor of any listener here, Peter, which is it used to be in the world, it was the endorsement blurbs that sold the book. It used to be the fact that, oh, the editor of Inc.com, she, you know, uh, Laura Lober wrote a, a nice blurb for the book. It's not anymore. It's the reviews up on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or Goodreads. So if the book touches you and you really felt there was value there, my one request, if you would, take one minute, two minutes, go wherever you buy your book and post an online review. You can say whatever you want to say. Um, I'm not trying to influence that. I'm just asking for you to take a moment to do that. It would mean the world to me. It would mean the world to me. Yeah, and I've seen that put in practice because I've had some experience with you and your team, and you guys really listen. And, uh, again, that's a such a valuable thing that um, you guys do that I wish more companies did. But, um, David, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for your time today. This has uh, been very phenomenal. I took a ton of notes. I can't wait to get into the book myself. Um, and, uh, again, for anybody who's listening, go to your nearest bookstore, your favorite bookstore, and pick up a copy of The Freedom Formula with uh, David Finkel. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Peter.